Coach Craig Robinson. This is it. I'm going to be a coach. President Obama's brother-in-law reveals the concerns the president had before announcing his run for the White House. He needed your help in convincing two really important people and relives the moment they found out he had won. He got up, looked at his phone, put it down, and sat down like he was, it was bad news. Robinson describes leaving a lucrative job in the financial world to pursue his own dream. How did you resign? I just got an offer to be a basketball coach, and I think I'm going to take it. All while his personal life was falling apart. I mean, it was a bitter divorce. You and your wife, ex-wife, still don't talk to this day. Coach also describes the importance of teaching his players off the court and the personal investment he makes in their lives. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. In some of the interviews that I've read that you've done about kind of this ongoing um, quest to figure out like true character. Um, and I, I guess I was just interested to know like what you really meant by that. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because my dad never talked to me about character. You know, he just set an example and we had rules to live by and your character, well, I should say my character, my sister's character just developed. You know, we never had one discussion about character. Now we talked about honesty and integrity and hard work and those kind of values, but we never had a real sort of sit down, talk about this is how you want your character to be. And I don't know why he didn't do that, but I suspect it's because you can't really force feed it. You know, it has to develop organically. And, uh, and what I've been trying to do with my life is kind of live my life similar to the way my dad lived and find out if you can teach that to your players or your workers or whoever you happen to be talking to. And sports is a great way to, first and foremost, to get guys' attention. And secondly, it gives me just a, a soapbox I can stand on every day and talk about character. How much do you really believe you can find out about somebody's character from watching them play, play basketball. basketball? Yeah, you know, a lot of people say that about like golf and different sports, and I'm, I'm sure it's true. But my dad and I really, f we really focused on that when we would watch a game or when we'd, he'd watch me play and he'd talk about the other team. and. I think that you obviously can't tell, you know, if a guy's going to go out and rob a bank or anything like that. But you're predisposed to when you're fatigued and you're playing a game to not think about sort of hiding your flaws. And basketball is a, an easy way to bring that out because you've got the combination of a few things. You have honesty. You know, when you when it, you're when you pick play a pickup game of basketball. There's nobody, there are no referees to call calls for you, so you have to call your own calls. And you have to give up calls when someone calls a call on you. That's an easy way to tell what kind of person a guy is because you play with guys who think winning is about just winning and they do whatever it takes, even lie on a call to win. And it, it's just a telltale sign right there. Um, you, can, you can really tell teamwork you know, uh, basketball is the type of game where you can't, if you're playing a five-on-five -five game, you can't dominate the game yourself for the entire game because you end up getting double teamed or triple teamed and your ability to sort of be unselfish is on display. Uh, and then there's the old, the, the hard work adage. I mean, some guys 
are out there playing who have no business playing in a game with a certain group of guys, but he fits because he's working his tail off. And that's another trait that you can see from playing. Now, you know, we're, this is back of the matchbook type stuff, but I believed it when my dad said it, and I've sort of watched it as I've grown up. How do you view your job as a coach? Well, clearly, it's to win games. I mean, at this level, when you're at the elite level of coaching in the Pac-12, you have to win games. But because of the people who I've been exposed to, starting with my parents and coaches and different mentors along the way, I view my job is to not only teach these guys how to play and win basketball games, but it's also to educate them on things that are off the court as well. You know, the, the, the term sort of life stories or life experiences or um, um, is, is one of those terms that you hear with coaches. I really want my guys to see more than just a basketball court. And I'll give you an example. When we, when we hit the road for road trips, if we can do it without missing too much class, I like to take my players to see some industry other than a sporting event to see how most people make their living so that they can understand fans and why they're in a position of, uh, why they're in a position to be envied because they're getting to do what they love to do for a living right now. Our players are, they're playing basketball for a living. Most people aren't doing what they do. I mean, aren't loving what they do. You love what you do, I love what I do, but we're probably in the 1%, maybe 5% of the population has jobs where they absolutely love doing what they do. And I'm trying to teach them to find, at least try some things so you know what you don't like while you're looking for that, that thing that makes you passionate. Right, and let's face it, most of them will not end up making it to the, the NBA. They, so they it, will not, but all of them think they have a shot. Right. Which is important, too. And, and, right. and I don't, I don't want to dash that dream, right. but I want them to have sort of a parallel dream of, okay, if I don't make the basketball, or when the basketball stops, what am I going to do? I want to take you back to when you were much younger growing up. How about the time uh, a policeman accused you of stealing oh. the bicycle that you were riding. Yeah, yeah, I wrote about that in A Game of Character. Um, that was one of those times where, that, that was probably my first time of understanding what profiling was. So, I, um, And this my, was an African-American oh, police yeah, officer. Oh yeah, yeah, no, that's, I was gonna get to that, that's right, it was a black cop, and I, you know, my neighborhood was predominantly black, south side of Chicago, and uh, the store Goldblatt's, I don't even think it's in existence anymore, had a sale on these bikes. My parents bought me a 10-speed bike, and it was yellow. And it came, so you know how on a 10-speed bike, your bike, your brake cables and your gear cables all would go down to the derailleur to the brake, those white cables. Mm -hmm. You might be too young, I don't even know if they use white cables anymore, but anyway, they didn't have the clamps for them to go around the shaft. So I, my mom used these twisty, these twist ties that came off the bread. So it was a very significant cut. It was like a green and white check twisty. Well, she used those to clamp my cables to the bike. So I'm riding the bike, 
And this policeman stops me and he grabs my bike and I'm riding down the street. He just grabs my bike and he's like, where are you going? And I was like, ah, I'm not going anywhere. He's like, you stole that bike, didn't you? I was like, no, I didn't steal that bike. I don't know, why would you think I stole this bike? I would never steal someone's bike. Apparently someone had the same bike, which isn't that hard to, because it was on sale. And they used those same twist ties, got their bike stolen. He swore it was me. And then he started trying tricky stuff like saying like, yeah, I saw you the other day with a guy who had an earring on and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but this is not their bike. This is my bike. And you're like 12 years old at the time, right? I'm young, yeah, 11 or 12 years old. And then he started getting belligerent and I was really upset because he wouldn't believe me. And then I was thinking I'm gonna get in trouble for something I didn't do. So he puts the bike in my in the trunk of his car and puts me in the police car and I said if you take me home you will find out that this is not my bike I mean this is that this is my bike so he took me home and my I went to the door and my mother came out because she had been waiting because I was past due so she had been waiting at the gate I think is the way the story goes and she said go inside and she talked to this policeman and it seemed like she talked to him for an hour. And the next day he came back to my house and apologized to me. And that was one of those things where, you know, you feel like you're sort of a victim and then at the end of it, it all worked out. I was just glad I didn't have to go to jail, but it, it sort of, it's, it, it sort of um, taught me a lesson about making sure before you accuse anybody or, or you know, any time you have to know where people's intentions are and where they come from. You never know. I mean, this guy dealt with crooks all the time and they probably look like me, young kids doing stuff they, they weren't supposed to. And um, to this day, when I hear about people getting profiled, I always think of that story. Tell about when you asked your father one day if the family was rich. So I had no concept of money when I was in like seventh grade. And somebody in my classroom said to me, man, you guys really must be rich. Your dad picks you up from school. Your mom doesn't work. And I was like, wow. They said something like you have nice clothes or something. There was something they said that made me think that made them think we were wealthy. And I, th I was thinking to myself, oh, yeah, maybe we are rich. And so I get home and I, I uh, said to my dad, I said, hey, dad, are we rich? And he said, and this was another thing about my dad that was really cool. He never made a reaction to anything I asked him. And he said, okay, well, I'll tell you this, we're not rich. And this was early in the week. He said, on Friday, I'll show you how rich we are. And I was like, great. So Friday rolls around, he gets his paycheck, right? And my dad worked for the city of Chicago, so he you know, didn't make a whole lot of money, but he could support his family. Well, instead of depositing it, he cashed it. And he came home and he brought the stub from his paycheck and the cash. He said, this is how much I make. And I looked at it and it, you know, I don't know how, it, it wasn't $1,000, but it might as well have been. I mean, it was a lot of money. And I was like, we are rich. And he's like, no, no, wait. 
he said, first of all, you got to take out your money for your rent. So he spreads all the money out in, you know, 20s, 10s, 5s, and 1s, and whatever the rent was. He's like, all right, count the rent out, and I counted it out, put it over there, he said. And, and, and I was like, wow, so this is what you have left? He's like, ah, what about car payment? You got to pay for your car. I was like, oh. So, and then, so he's teaching me these lessons about bill paying and everything at the same time. I was like, you have to pay for your car every month, he said, until it's paid off. So I took the money out for that. And, he, and then he said, what else? And I said, groceries. He's like, yep, I took all the money out. And it got to a point where he was left with like 40 bucks. And he said, now, you have to save some money for yourself. So you put half of that in the bank. And he puts it in the bank, and it's $20. And he said, that's what's left over. So that was his way. Uh, he did two things. He, he showed me we weren't rich, which was a good thing. Um, and, but he showed me the value of, actually, a, of actual money and, and paying bills and saving. It was, a, it was something that, uh, um, has uh, again, it's, it stayed with me all these years and is sort of part of my makeup. What do you think you most learned from your parents? Oh, my goodness. There's so many things. I don't know what would be the most. The, you know, the most is unconditional love for your kids. That's big. You know, I, I, I look at my sister and I look at myself and all the things that we've done. You wouldn't be able to do it without the loving support of your parents. You know, my parents always made us feel like we were the most important things in their lives. And yet... Um, didn't make us be achievers, you know? They never said, you gotta get straight A's. And I remember this, because I used to try be trying to figure out what's the lowest grades I can get and still exist in this family. And, <laughs> um, and my dad would always say, listen, if you're gonna be a ditch digger, just be the best ditch digger, just work hard. If you work hard and you get a B or a C, I'm not gonna say anything. But if you're just slacking off and you get a B, that's bad. It's bad if you get an A. So you should always work hard. And so um, that unconditional love and then one A would be hard work. Uh, you know, we were talking about college a little bit earlier. Uh, you get two D1 scholarships and you also get accepted to Princeton if you wanted to go there. They'd give you some money, but your parents would still have to pay somewhere right. in the neighborhood of 3000 to $3,500 right. a year. Um, explain the conversation that you had with your father where you guys were analyzing the different options. Yeah, so I was recruited by the University of Washington, Texas Arlington, and Princeton University. And um, it got to the time where you sort of have your family sit down to talk about what your decision was. So we're sitting at the kitchen table, and so my, my dad said, well, what you thinking? And I said, well, I've looked at everything, and based on my analysis, I think I want to go to the University of Washington. And, and no offense to the University of Washington, but my dad did what my dad did does when he's not pleased with a decision or something. So he, he pulls one of these, he goes, And then he puts his chin down and he rubs it like this. He used to do it. And then I'm thinking to myself, ah, oh, what have I done wrong? I mean, he do I, I thought I had narrowed it down to three really good choices. 
And, um, and he said, well, tell me how you got to your decision. I said, well, they're in the pack eight. I think by the time I'm a junior, I can play. And, um, but most of all, they're giving me a full ride. We don't have to pay for anything. And like you said, Princeton was going to be about $3,000, which might as well have been a million dollars to me. I mean, 3000 that just sounds like a lot of money. So he says, well, if you pick your school based on how much we have to pay, I'd be very disappointed. And my dad would be that kind of guy. If he was disappointed, the whole house was disappointed. I mean, you'd be in tears if, if he said, I was disappointed in you. And that's the sort of carrot he had on, on me and my sister. And I'm like, oh, he's disappointed. And uh, he said, but you should think, over, think about it overnight, and then we'll talk again tomorrow. That's how he played it. So I thought about it, and uh, the next day rolls around, and he said, so did you get a chance to think about what we were talking about last night? And I said, yeah. And I said, actually, you know, I really wanted to go to Princeton. I thought it would be the best place, great education, but I really did think we couldn't afford $3,000. He was like, fine, you're going, just like that. He wouldn't even let us discuss it, and that's how I ended up going to Princeton. Changed my life. Changed my life. What did you later learn about how your parents afforded not only for you to go to Princeton, but then yeah. your uh, sister ultimately ended up going there a couple of years later as when, well? Yeah. Well, I find out once my dad died and we're going through his papers and my mom is telling, telling us about what we should know about his affairs, she was like, oh, man, here are those credit cards. And I was like, boy, I'm glad we finally paid these off. And I'm like... What do you mean paid them off? What are you doing with credit card debt? Because they weren't a credit card type family. I mean, they, ne they never bought stuff that they couldn't pay for at the end of the month. She was like, oh, yeah, this is from you guys' school uh, tuition. I was like, what? She's like, yeah, oh, you didn't know that? Yeah, that's how we paid for your school. We put it on credit cards. I was like, mom, the interest on that money. She's like, yeah, it was a lot. And it was like no, she didn't skip a beat. Yeah, yeah, but it was what, what we had to do. It was, it was like an investment. And that, I mean, my heart didn't sink. I just had yet another reason to be um, just in awe of my parents. And, um, you know, the lesson, I know it sounds like everything happens to me. I get a lesson out of it. But the lesson from that is they sacrificed for their kids' education. So you go to Princeton, you're two-time Ivy League Player of the Year while you're there. You end up getting drafted by the 76ers. Mm -hmm. uh, you're cut before the actual uh, season starts. So you go to Europe, play basketball there mm -hmm. professionally for a couple of years. And when you come back, you, you have interest in getting into coaching, yet you talk to uh, oh, yeah. your, your coach, the <laughs> coach legendary Carrell. Yeah. And he, he was vehemently opposed to, to me coaching right why was he so discouraging well and, and it wasn't anything malicious so let me let me let me let me state that right out and, and this was who coached you at Princeton this, right. coach Carrill coached me at Princeton you know recruited me he and my dad were, were different people but they reminded me of each other he loved my dad and when I came back from playing and the reason why I wanted to go into coaching was my team in Europe, my coach there was a Pete Carrill fan. So he allowed me 
to implement some of the Princeton offense into this pro team. And I had fun teaching the game, coaching the game. And I was like, this is it. I'm going to be a coach. And <clears throat> I'm coming back from England on the way to stop off to see my sister and to talk to Coach Carrillo and tell him, hey, coach, I want to be a coach. And he said, you don't want to be a bleeping coach. What do you want to stick with basketball for? You, you, you're from the south side of Chicago. You got a Princeton degree. You played enough basketball. Go do something else. I, I ended up going back to business school and gravitated to the sales and trading side of the investment banking world and was having a great career. And so that was about eight to 10 years after I came back from playing. And then once I realized how people in that industry were retiring at 45 or 50, that's when I thought, okay, now if I can, if I can do well enough at this job where I can pay off my student loans, I can pay off my mortgage, I can pay off my cars, then my exit strategy is going to be this. I'm going to teach seventh grade and coach high school basketball. Why was the financial work unenjoyable for you? Well, it, don't get me wrong, it wasn't unenjoyable. What, what it was was that, you know, when you grow up poor, and, and I won't say, when you grow up with no, not much money, because I don't, I don't, I don't consider myself poor, I, I felt very enriched in different ways, but when you grow up with not much money, all you think about is that having money will fix everything. And being able to work at an investment bank and, and make more money than my dad ever made in, in very quickly, you, you do what guys who've never had money do. You buy things. You get the car you wanted. You buy a house. And you go on the vacations you thought you'd want to go on. And you put your kids in private school and all the things that you think are going to help <clears throat> help them get ahead. And then you realize, or then I realized, none of that made me feel any better or worse about myself. It wasn't fulfilling. So after you're riding around in the car, you want, always want it. Then you start worrying about people bumping into it and nicking it. And it's like, no, oh, this is dumb. And uh, so we, um, it, it, it's just one of those things that it, I wasn't, I wasn't uncomfortable with it. It just wasn't my thing. And I knew there was something else out there that I would be, I would actually love doing. And one day, uh, your college coach's assistant, who's taken the head coaching job at Northwestern, uh, calls you up. You're, you know, at work midday at, at your finance job, and uh, offers you the, an assistant coaching job at Northwestern. Right. Uh, take it. Take it from there. So I am. So I've left Morgan Stanley to go work at a smaller boutique type firm and sort of run the corporate finance area. So it's a bigger job and it's exciting and it gives me some new challenges. But I still in the back of my mind have this exit strategy of, you know, 15 years from now I will be teaching seventh grade and coaching high school basketball. So I'm, not, I'm nowhere near the finish line. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't stop then and do it, otherwise I would have. Well, Coach Carmody, who was an assistant at Princeton, gets the job at Northwestern. He calls me up. And he says, 
Craig, how you doing? I'm like, Coach, I'm doing fine, great. I am uh, so happy that you got the job. And he said, good, good, but I'm not calling about that. I'm calling to see if you want to come join me. And I say to him, and the way to, to understand why I did this, I'm still sitting in a, in a trading room. So there's somebody sitting right next to me on, on all sides. And you know, you, if you walk into a trading room, you can't tell who the boss is and who, who the secretaries are because everybody sits together and you need to for information purposes, sharing information. I said to him, coach, let me call you right back. And I hang up the phone. I tell uh, my partner, listen, I got to go out for a minute. I, I run, I take the elevator down, get in a cab, and I said to the guy, just drive around downtown, I got to make a phone call. And I call him back, and he's offering me this job as an assistant coach. And uh, I can't believe this, you know, and I'm at, I'm, I'm, I'm like this in my other career, and, and I'm at a point where to leave now means I'm leaving a lot on the table. I mean, let's, let's put it this way. you 37 years old. Yeah, time. I'm 37 kind of years late old. late in the game, too. Yeah, to make a... I mean, everybody starts out as like a, a, a director of basketball operations or a grad assistant or when they, write, when they get right out of college or get done playing. And, I'm, and I, all this stuff is going through my head while he's trying to talk me into taking this job. And I said, let me think about it, but I really am interested. And the biggest thing is, for me, I'm worried about going from making a lot to making a little because I've got two kids and I'm going through this divorce. How much of a salary difference it, was it, it? It's like a tenth. You know, it's, it's a lot and a little. I mean, it's just not even close. It, it, it's so big that my friends all thought I was having a nervous breakdown when I really? told them I was going to be an assistant coach. Yeah, I mean, this is, if uh, I remember correctly, like high six figures versus mid five figures. Yeah, you know, 50 grand you're making, yeah. you know, 50 grand you're making. And uh, uh, my, and I said to him, I said, let me, call, I'll call you back tomorrow. So there were two things I did. I had, since I was going through a divorce and my kids were young, my, my two oldest kids were young, but they were smart and I didn't want to, I mean, it felt like their lives were getting shaken up anyway with the divorce, so I wanted to sort of run it by them before I, um, I said yes. So how, how do you ask an eight and four-year-old? So I, first thing I said to him was, listen, daddy's getting a new job, and my son immediately says, are you moving away? And I said, no, 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 I'll be here. As a matter of fact, I might be able to spend more time with you guys. And they said, what is it? I said, well, uh, I think I'm going to coach basketball. And my son was thinking, and you could see the wheels turning, the steam coming out of his ears. And he said, does this mean your office is a gym? And I said, well, not exactly. My office isn't a gym, but my office is right next to the gym. <laughs> and then almost right on top of me saying that, my daughter, who was four, said, do they have a pool there? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes, they do. And, and then she was like, great. And so this huge weight lifted off of my chest because I was thinking like an adult, thinking that they had some clue as to how 
different their lives were going to be. They had no idea. I mean, to them, how much money I made wasn't a big deal. It was a big deal to me vis-a-vis right. -vis them. But once I got the buy-in from them, it was easy. Then I went and talked to my partners. and How did you resign? I just, I just told them, look, you're not going to believe this, but I just got an offer to be a basketball coach, and I think I'm going to take it. And my partner who ran the firm was like, are you sure? He's like, I'm going to leave your position open for about six months in case you want to come back. And I was like, look, that's great, but I don't think so. I think this is what I want to do. And, and they were great. And, um, and that was the end of my business career and the start of my basketball career. You took the Northwestern assistant coaching job. You end up getting divorced. Um, seemed to turn into a reasonably dire financial time for you because uh, on you know one hand you have to give portion of your life savings to your ex-wife you're also paying child support which was right. based on what you were making in finance where That's now right. you're making a nominal amount uh, relative to that um, you move in with your mother I moved back um, in. Yeah. your then girlfriend who's you know now your wife told me that I think she loaned you like five thousand uh, dollars at one point she said she also actually mailed you gifts to give your kids exactly. for Christmas as if yeah. they were coming from you. That's right. How much of a struggle was it then? You know, did it quickly turn into financially? <laughs> it was, it was you, the, the, the way you portrayed it is very truthful, but it sounds like more of a struggle than it was. Really? And I'll tell you why. It was actually a good time to reassess what's important in your life and um, you know if money was important was that important I would have still been working in investment banking it had been easy it would have been easy to go back to that um, but when I decided to make the move both my mom and my sister were advocating do what you love that's what my dad would have said don't just do it for the money. And, it, and my dad always said that. He said, do what you love doing. If you do it well enough, the money either will come or it won't make any difference because you love what you're doing. I mean, that sounds so simple, but nobody says that. Nobody says that to anybody. It's all about the money and all about stuff. So it, 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 it could be perceived as dire, but I had enough to pay my bills. And then I eventually got good at coaching, got a head coaching job, and then stuff sort of gets back to normal. You, you've talked repeatedly about, you know, the learning uh, something, taking something away from each situation you've been in. Uh, those, those close to you made no secret that, I mean, it was a bitter divorce. You know, you and I guess your wife, ex-wife still don't talk to this day. I guess there was a, a substance abuse problem. Um, you, you have custody of the, the kids. Um, wh what do you think, looking back, you learned from that part of your life? You know, what I learned is you can't ever tell what your situation's gonna end up, even if it starts out great. And um, you have to be adaptable. And, you know, I looked at my parents, I look at my when my mom married my dad, um, she didn't know he was going to have MS, and she had to adapt. He had to adapt. And what I've found is I've had to really adapt, and uh, and I continue to. 
your wife uh, Kelly was telling me that you know after you guys got married your sister says to her look the one thing I never want to hear from you is that things are fine because that's uh, all <laughs> I, I ever heard from my brother that things were fine until I found out he was get, getting divorced why you know you, I mean you spoken so much about how close of a family you guys have yeah, in right. such a trying time um, keep, keep something like that from yeah. the mom and sister right that's an easy one Graham I mean you know the whole time I was thinking it might work out so what I've always thought that or I know that if I was sharing all of the bad stuff with the rest of my family they would never get over it I mm. would get over it they would never get over it and I'd wouldn't be able to do that to my ex-wife or to my wife if if you got if you get into it too much and you you tell them everything they'll never forgive your significant other so that was the reason why being as close as our family was they were all shocked that I was getting a divorce because my sister was really not happy with really me. She, oh no she was not what, what happy. did she say she was like, how could you not tell me about, how could you go through all this and not tell me? And I told her that reason. She was like, I would have been able to get over it and nobody can. I, my recommendation is if you get into a fight with your girlfriend, don't tell your mom or your sister because they will be madder than you eventually. So that's why, that's why I didn't. Marty Nesbitt, one of your close friends, also President Obama's close friend, I was talking to him the other day and he said, you have to bring up like the greatest pickup basketball game we ever played. Oh, and I guess it was at, yeah. it was at the White House. He says. Well, uh, it was for, it was actually at uh, at the Army base near the White House. Okay. And um, and this is President Obama's birthday. Everybody from birthday. Magic yeah. to LeBron is. I mean, part you, of this game. Let me tell you, this was this was so much better than All Star Weekend, <laughs> and let me tell you why. So. Barack invites a number of NBA guys to come play pickup. And all of them say yes. I mean, the only one who couldn't come was Kevin Durant. So all these all-stars, I mean, LeBron and Magic and Bill Russell was there and Kobe, and Kobe was hurt and he came anyway. <laughs> Paul Gasol, uh, Derek Rose, Dwayne Wade. I mean, you just, you just keep going on and on. To give you an idea, there were five teams of six people six people on a team and every team had four NBA guys on it. <laughs> so it was like so our day. own fantasy camp. So <laughs> we all were on different teams and we all had four NBA guys except for one team, Maya Moore was there. So they had four NBA teams plus one future WNBA player. And you're talking about fun because those dudes were playing like it was a real game. Oh, really? They were so excited to be there that they were putting on a show. And, and the only people who were there to watch were uh, uh, wounded warriors, uh, wounded veterans, and their families. I'm telling you, it was some of the best basketball that we all played. I mean, we were all on our games. I mean, uh, Dwayne Wade dunked on me. I mean, it wasn't like he was trying to be nice. He dunked on me. Um, uh, LeBron was running around as fast and as strong as he would as if he was playing against the Celtics. I mean, it was really nice. And then we all went to the White House after and had had a picnic out on the on the lawn. So, so how did you and the president play? 
president's team won. Did, I, did I do he, remember did he that. Pick, did he pick who was on his team? I think Reggie Love picked who was on his team, so oh, that's like him same, picking same who was on his team. Right. But it didn't matter. Everybody's team was good. I mean, it, and, and it wasn't like he they blew out everybody. I mean, his team won. Chris Paul was there. Uh, I mean, it was just, you name it, they were there, except for Reggie. Reggie couldn't, I mean, uh, 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 Kevin Durant couldn't come because uh, he had a previous engagement that he didn't want to renege on. And again, you talk about character. I mean, he could have easily blown that off for the president, and he did not. So it was fun. Your sister, the first lady, uh, and the president, first when they first started dating, I believe you and your mom were basically like taking bets on how long before your sister would dump the guy because it, oh, that yeah. was kind of she, what, what she did, right? She didn't have boyfriends for a long period of time. She didn't suffer any any fools and, and it was it was my mom my dad and myself we were all thinking okay how long is this gonna last and we were sort of trying to handicap it and um, you know looking back we didn't give Barack the president enough credit because we were just thinking ah, he's gonna be like all these other guys he's gonna be kicked to the curb in about six months and then we won't have to worry about it we we'll on to the next guy and I, I know you've told this story before, so forgive me. No, uh, that's all right. The, the time she 121st called. 121st time. The 120. The time uh, she, she asked you to take the president to play basketball. Right. Yeah. And um, so she's been dating him for a while now. It's longer than all of us had thought. So we're thinking, oh, maybe this is serious. Well, I, I figure out it's serious when she asked me to. She's like, you know, you and dad always popping off about how you can tell a guy's personality on the court. Can you take him to play basketball with you because he plays? I was like, no way. And there was two reasons I said no way. Number one, I play with some good guys, you know, and it wouldn't be fair to take him to play with guys and for him to, like, look bad. The other thing I told her was, I'm not doing your dirty work for you. <laughs> if you don't like him, cut him loose. If you like him, you work it out. She was like, please, I just want to get your opinion and... I was like, okay, so we set up this game with a bunch of our friends who, you know, one of them is Arnie Duncan, who's the Secretary of Defense, another one is Marty Nesbitt, John Rogers, who I played with at Princeton, who owns Aerial Mutual Funds. So, you know, it was a good group of guys who played basketball. And uh, we took them out, and, the, you know, you, you, the, 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 the story from that part point tells itself because they're together, but he was, it was great. I was able to give my sister a great report back, and, uh, you know, I always... And I, I, I'm, I'm always thinking about what if he had actually been a jerk when we were playing, you wouldn't be here interviewing me. <laughs> Back in 2006, uh, the president comes to you and uh, basically says, look, I, I think I'm going to give this a shot in terms of running. But he needed your help in convincing two really important people. <laughs> yeah. Explain that. Yeah, well... You know, our family is just a normal family, right? So if, if this could have been him talking about another job where he had to move away or something, but, you know, he said, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this thing. And, I, and the way he said it, I thought he was, like, going to buy a car or something. And I was like, do what thing? He's like, run for the president. I was like, great. That's exciting. And he had this look on his face, and he's like, I don't think your mom and your sister are going to go for it. I'm like, what? They'll go for it. And he's like, nah, I need you to talk to them. And he was not kidding, you know, he, was, he really thought that uh, they would say no, which they probably would have. 
uh, if, if the choice was up to them. And, and so basically all I did, it, I mean, it, it sounds a lot bigger than it actually is, but I just used my sister's own argument on her. When I was, was deciding to leave investment banking and go into coaching, she was like, you have to do it. It's what you love. You'll be good at it. You're passionate. Don't worry about the money. So I started the discussion with that story. And I told her, you remember when you told me about leaving investment banking and going into coaching and all, how it was important and healthy to do what you love doing? I said, you got to remember that with Barack, that um, you know, the whole time we've known him, he said he's going to be a politician. And she said, yeah, but this is different. It's going to be too much on the family. And I said, well, you, the, that's true, but you can't penalize him for being really good at what he does. And that was sort of the start of the discussion. And, and uh, my mom was a little bit easier to convince because the argument I used on her was, you remember when I was younger, when we were younger, you always told us to keep stepping outside of the box and taking the next challenge and you can't hold him back from this this is the ultimate challenge and my mom knew what i was doing i always use my my parents arguments on them now that i've got my i gotten older and uh, she was like well what about the girls and i was like well that's perfect opportunity you could spend a lot more time with the girls if you went out there with them and um and so um to make a long story short he ended up running. I think he probably would have done it anyway. It just would really? have been. It would have been hard. It would. It would have been hard if my sister wasn't on board because she's such a good asset and good. Uh, she's. She did such a good job campaigning, and uh, um, it was fun watching both of them out there. The night the 2008 election results were coming in, mm -hmm. you, your family, uh, were having dinner at. The, your sister and uh, the president's house in Chicago with you yeah. know everybody's kids as uh, the election results were coming in. How well do you recall that dinner? Oh, I, I recall that very well because it was like any normal dinner that we would have, only everyone was so nervous that it was really uncomfortable because the kids were all at an age where they kind of understood what was going on and we were trying not to talk about it. So there were no televisions on, no radios on, and everybody's cell phones were strategically placed far enough away because it was dinner but near enough away so that if it started buzzing you would hear it. So we're talking to the girls about their school and uh, you know Barack and Michelle are talking to our kids about moving out to Oregon and blah, 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 and all the, or living in a um, new house and all that kind of stuff. And we're all trying to play it cool. And then there are these si dead silent times when everybody's trying to think, you're trying to think of how you're going to keep this discussion going, but in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I wonder what's going on. Right. And why? Why weren't you guys? Why did you guys not want to talk about what I, you know was obviously? I I couldn't take the suspense. I mean, I I I wouldn't have been able to take it. I mean, I the second time I were around, we watched the returns. Mm -hmm. Completely nerve wracking. Did didn't your sister give him a present or, or something? Yeah, she gave him a tie to wear 
um, at the speech whether okay. he won or lost. Okay. And uh, it was it was kind of cute. It was like I don't know if this is gonna be a lucky tie or not lucky tie and unlucky tie. And so she gave him a gift, and that was so. So we're we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, this is what happens. You hear helicopters. That was the first thing I noticed. But in Chicago, that's not too out of the ordinary. So. I didn't think anything, and then all of a sudden, everybody's phones started buzzing, and that was about the time they were ready to call it. And so, we're all, nobody moves for their phones, except Barack, he gets up, looks at his phone, sets his phone down, sits down and starts eating again, and then he puts his fork down and says, well, looks like we're gonna win. And we all started cracking up because of the way he did that. I mean, he was, clearly did that purposefully. He got up, looked at his phone, <laughs> put it down, and sat down like he was, it was bad news. It was like, looks like we're going to win. And we were like, oh, my God. And then you could hear sirens and helicopters. And Why? Because you got to have, once you win, you become the president, and then you have a full-fledged motorcade as opposed to sort of a candidate motorcade. So I'm sure they had one for the Republicans set up, too, in case they won. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's how that night went. Your family uh, rides in the motorcade with your sister yeah, right. and the president yeah. uh, downtown. How well do you recall when oh, their would, daughter, like yeah, Sasha? Yeah, this is great. Malia, Malia was oh, the one. So we're, we're riding down. So we, you know, we, in Chicago, we lived about seven minutes apart. Um, so we were at their house. So we just got dressed there, and we're in the motorcade heading to the Grant Park where he's going to give the acceptance speech. And we're all just talking and riding and excited, and Malia, out of nowhere, says, there are no cars on the other side of Lakeshore Drive. We're going north on Lakeshore Drive, but we're on the south end, and the, coming south, no cars. That never happens. It's Lakeshore Drive. And we were like, oh, yeah, that's cool. And then the Secret Service guy says, oh, yeah, this is official motorcade. They got to stop traffic in both directions. We're like, man, that's great. And I'm sitting there thinking, and this wasn't my first time riding with in, in, in the motorcade. I always like, the, the most fun for me is thinking about the logistics of everything. And I said to my sister, you're not ever going to be able to drive a car again. And I was kind of half joking. And she said, yes, I am. I said, no, you're not. She said, yes, I am. I said, no, you're not. She said, yes, I am. And then the Secret Service guy said, no, you're not. Really? <laughs> That's great. Yeah. R reading your book, you said um, your sister's w one of the most intelligent people you've ever met. If she wanted to, what do you think the likelihood is she could be president? I would say that she would be a good candidate because she's smart, she's well-spoken. You know, this is uh, a time when uh, I think a woman president would be very attractive to a lot of people, especially with sort of all the head-knocking and lack of teamwork going on in Washington. Uh, she'd be a great candidate, but she, I know she has no interest. What, why not? Just growing up with her, she just, this, it's really not her thing. She would, pro, she would prefer to do uh, sort of your behind the scenes, sort of um, not-for-profit, 
helping as many people as she can as opposed to being out in front like like you have to be when you're the president there there are a couple other um, experiences I wanted you to recall if you don't okay. mind one, one being uh, watching the July 4th fireworks from the roof of the White House oh yeah that was that was um, that was the first 4th of July that we celebrated with them at the White House you know um, and it was um, what was it was just sort of the first time spending a, an extended period of time at the at the White House because we had been there for the inauguration, but that was a quick night, and then um, because of my season, I couldn't get back out there until July, and we took the kids out there, and uh, what struck me was standing on the balcony, watching fireworks, and you see the Capitol, and you see the um, the memorials, you see all of the architecture around Washington, D.C., and you're standing there thinking, what am I doing standing up here on the roof of the White House? It just, uh, it was just a weird feeling. And Aren't the guys with the snipers right by yeah, you, too? Yeah, there's security all around. I mean, it was just, you know, it's just, you just don't kind of, you growing up on the south side of Chicago, you, you, you don't think of yourself as being in that situation and uh, it just made me really step back and and appreciate our country and you know it was fitting that was the fourth of july and you're thinking about independence and you're thinking about freedom and you're thinking about equality and you know your sister and brother-in-law are inhabiting the white house it's kind of a weird feeling how about another july 4th at camp david yeah well you know uh yeah, Camp David is is great because it, you, you... You guys have a lot of fun there, I understand. Yeah, because you really feel like they, my sister and the president, get to really relax like normal folk relax because I just don't think you... you they get much time for relaxation. I know, you know, uh, even when he's relaxed and he's working part of the day, but... Um, yeah, we've, we've spent, we spent the 4th of July at Camp David with all the kids and swimming in the pool and, and doing fun stuff. And it just, it reminds us of being, you know, back in Chicago in summers when we were, you know, just doing family things, playing games and watching movies and having fun with the kids. Is sleeping in uh, the Lincoln bedroom? Was yeah. That happened the first night. That okay. was inauguration night of the first time around. Uh, and, you know... I have I, I I like history now that I've gotten older, so I know some history. But you know, to be in that Lincoln bedroom, and then you know, you see a copy of the Gettysburg Address that's in the desk that's in there, and you're just like, man, just think of the people who have been in this room. And um, I end up in the Lincoln bedroom just because it's the longest bed, so it's the one I fit in. Uh, Roberto Nelson. Uh, fifth year senior. Yes. You were the only person to have ever visited his father when his father was in prison. I did. Um, what was that experience like? I got to tell you, it was one of the most moving experiences I've ever had. And it wasn't because I went to visit his dad in prison. It was because Roberto and I have a very special relationship because he's a really good basketball player who would be really good at anything else he did other than basketball but has been 
sort of pigeonholed into being this basketball player. That's how I ended up recruiting such a good player, getting him to come to Oregon State. We hit it off that way. We didn't talk about basketball. We talked about all these life experiences that he could have in college and what he wanted to do after basketball. He's much more interesting than that. I went to visit his dad because I thought it would mean something to Roberto that his dad be part of this process. And I couldn't do it before he came here, so I, I didn't want him to think I wouldn't come visit him because I already got him, that that would be the only reason for me to visit him. So I finally, I went through all the, there's a lot of red tape you have to go through to be a visitor when you're not a family member. And I got through all of that and I went to visit him. And the reason why it was so moving was that I said to his dad, Bruce, that I don't know why you're in here, but you can't be all bad because that's a great kid. And he broke down when I said that. And then I started crying and it was just, it was, I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. Um, he's a terrific kid. Why did having the opportunity to do something like that for him mean so much to you? Well, um, I always, um, it's part of my teaching is that basketball is just a part of your life. You know, you got to, I, I wanted him, you know, I wanted him to understand that the rest of your life is important to me as a person, not just as your coach, as your friend, a mentor. I want to, I want, you know, I was, I, I'm close with his mom too. I'm close with, I try and be as close as I can with the parents because they're entrusting their, their, their most precious asset to me for a certain period of time. Uh, but I thought I thought it was important for Roberto that uh, that I, I I do it and um, and it was a part of you know as a it it, it it was it was just one of those things where it was one of those stories that were was out there and people were would say certain things and I wanted to be able to have my own opinion and uh, you know that that's 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 really it I just I I, I thought it and and I thought it was important for his dad to know what a great kid he has. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger and visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.